Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with gynaecologist and obstetrician Dr. Trudy Smith about a topic many women feel uncomfortable talking about, dryness of the vagina experienced by women during menopause. Professor Vernon Lowe, a haematologist and head of the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of the Free State, will be on the line and will be talking about chronic myeloid leukemia, one of the lesser known strains of leukemia. Barbara Hines, a lecturer in audiology at the University of Pretoria, will be joining us this evening and we'll be talking about tinnitus or tinnitus, that constant ringing you get in your ears, suffered by a large number of the population. And recently in South Africa was Dr. Christy Hughes of the Institute of Functional Medicine in the United States and we'll be chatting about where healthcare is really going. And just a reminder, if you need any information about something you hear on the show this evening or you miss a contact number or a website address, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Health Matters with Karen Key. While it may not be a topic many women feel comfortable talking about even to their doctor, dryness of the vagina is one of the most uncomfortable symptoms women experience during menopause. There is help at hand though, and so joining me this evening is gynaecologist and obstetrician Dr. Trudy Smith. Dr. Smith, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is definitely one of those things I think a lot of women possibly just suffer in silence. Uh, absolutely. Nobody likes to talk about the poor vagina. No, it's kind of you just won't mention that, you know. No, I don't like to mention that word. No. Mm. So let's just start at the beginning. This is all due to menopause, one of those other joys we have as women, you know. And um, could you just explain what actually occurs during menopause that would lead to something like this? Well, it doesn't only occur at menopause. It also occurs when you're breastfeeding and after delivery. Um, so essentially when your estrogen levels drop, your vagina is very rich in estrogen receptors and when your estrogen levels drop, your vagina becomes very thinned and becomes dry because estrogen is quite important for lubrication and for moisture in the vagina. And up until now, there's really been not much that can be done or what could have been done up until now? Well, I think, you know, like we said, the vagina is not often spoken about and many women don't really speak about sort of sexual matters or dry vagina. And so it hasn't really been in the forefront of women's health. You know, we don't really speak about it as much as we should. But in a recent survey, they found that it's a significant problem in the menopause and we just need to a, either mention it or the gynecologist needs to ask about it. But they don't. But they don't. They don't. Because it's, again, one of those sort of really deep, dark secrets that no one really mentions, you know. Absolutely. And I think it's, like, critical that we start talking out and speaking out about our issues. You know, I mean, a dry vagina leads to increased incidence of urinary tract infections, which are much more common in the menopause, overactive bladder where, you, you know, you're running to the loo all the time. Um, to piddle, you know, you know where every single stop on the way to Durban yes. is, uh, or you parking off in the aisle seat of the movie house or or the opera theatre because you need to get up to go to the loo, and these are all things that really can be sorted. And it's very unusual though, because you know, as women, we normally like to talk a lot, so it's it's surprising that this is something we don't talk about. Yeah, but do we ever chat about our own bodies? We don't really. We might chat that we've got a, like a fat roll here and a fat <laughs> roll there, but that's about it, you know. 
And what about, now we're going to be talking about something that's brand new on the market and it possibly will help an awful lot of women. But is this something that is for everybody? I mean, what about people that are on HRT? What about that sort of thing? So, I mean, they, they, obviously you can use things that are just for the moment, like a lubricant when you, you know, during sexual activity. Or you could use something that's sustainable and long-lasting in terms of vaginal dryness. Um, so you can use local estrogen in the vagina and very little of it gets absorbed into your general body. So for all of those who are afraid of taking HRT, you see, oral HRT or hormone replacement therapy actually doesn't affect vaginal lubrication. You, you still need local estrogen. So this, this has no impact on somebody possibly who's been advised not to take any hormone replacement? Yeah, I mean, obviously you would, uh, you know, it, it, even in, in uh, we use it even in patients, for instance, um, who are breast cancer survivors who have very dry vaginas. Uh, twice a week will improve lubrication. But, I mean, that needs to be discussed with a gynecologist or with their oncologist. This is, we're going to talk about what, what we're talking about in a moment, but this is something that is available over-the-counter without prescription at a o- pharmacy. OTC, over-the-counter, as we call it, without a prescription. But possibly, if you do have any other health issues, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad idea to mention this to your doctor. Absolutely. You know, I think it's important and important to be self-educated about it. So let's tell the listeners what we're talking about then. We've been sort of you well, know, going I mean, around the mulberry bush local here. Local estrogen like uh, Vagifem tablets, I mean, they've been a- around actually for a very long time. It's just that nobody's really spoken about the poor vagina and vaginal dryness. And, and I think, you know, I feel quite passionate that we really start need to start talking about women's health much more frequently, particularly when it comes to the vagina. And so uh, Vagifem is available over the counter. Um, You use it three times a week. Uh, It's a tablet that gets inserted into the vagina and you insert it high up into the vagina and um, it, it almost like coats the vagina and it increases the moisture and improves symptoms like overactive bladder, urinary tract infections, etc. So it's more, it's more than just the one thing. It actually helps for quite a number of, of conditions. Absolutely. I mean, you know, so often you shy away from sexual intercourse because your vagina is dry and, and you don't talk about it. And, and so, you know, you jump into bed and pretend you're sleeping because it's uncomfortable. But, I mean, you can really sort that problem out and easily. So this is just one. It's tablets. You'd use them, you said, twice a week? You're in the vagina. It's not oral tablets. No, no, so no. So they're tablets that you put into the vagina twice or thrice a week. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday or Tuesday, Friday. And then once you've been taking this, is there a limit to how long you should be using this? Will you suddenly get to the point where it's now working by, by itself? You don't need to keep using the tablets? No, you would need to keep using the tablet. Once you stop uh, using it, you, you know, you could revert to back to having a dry vagina. So you would need long-term use for it. So it's not something that you would, for instance, use for a week or so. And so you need long-term use. And you'd need to be examined regularly by your doctor once you've been using this? Oh, you need to be examined regularly by well, your doctor, even if you're not using it, at I'm, least once a year. Is that So that's fine. You don't have to do it more regularly than that. No, okay, definitely. so the once a year that we keep impressing that upon people impressing. is so important. Um, that's still okay. Absolutely. Because this is actually rather a, a good news for, I'm sure, a lot of women that maybe possibly had not heard about this 
possible treatment that they can now go out and get over the counter, which is even better. So you don't even have to get a prescription from the doctor. Absolutely. And you can, and it's very simple to use. Very simple. It comes with an applicator. It's like a pessary, you know, like mm. um, like a not quite a suppository. It's a tablet. It looks like a tablet, and it comes with an applicator that you just put into the vagina and push, and then the tablet is into the vagina, and it dissolves, and it coats the whole vagina. So this sounds like really good news. And as you say, it's been around for a while, but uh, we're not talking about these things. No, we're we're in the middle of Movember, and I've been impressing upon men for the past month that they need to start talking about their own bodies and their health and go to the doctors. And, you know, here's something that us women who keep telling the men to do it, we now need to start looking at at ourselves possibly, especially when it comes to this. You know, often a a postmenopausal woman, you'll say to them, you know, how's your sex life? And they'll go, oh, doc, my vagina is very dry. But my husband's having a problem. And then you need to, well, why is your, you know, I mean, one of the first signs of, of male health issues is erectile dysfunction. Mm. And men are equally not as good as, at speaking about that as women are. Well, hopefully this month of, no, of November, hopefully a lot more of them will be talking about that. So, I if do we, hope so if we all start talking about our health issues, we'll all be a lot better off in the long run. For sure. Gosh, well, Dr. Smith, thank you so much for imparting all that wonderful knowledge. And I'm going to give out some contact details and websites and, and some information so that people who might have listened to this and thought, gosh, well, there's the answer now, can go out tomorrow morning and hopefully get some help. How quickly does it start working, just by the way? You know, I think you mustn't expect an overnight success. And at least six weeks of treatment, you'll see a significant improvement. Okay, so if you start tomorrow, you're not going to be great by the weekend. It's no, going to take a while. No, but okay. it'll help. It'll help. Just just be patient and you'll get there in the end. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. And thank you for your time. Pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Good night to you. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gynecologist and obstetrician, Dr. Trudy Smith. And if you'd like to find out more, you can take a look at the website. It's www.vagifem.co.za and that's V-A-G-I-F. Vagifem.co.za or pop into your local pharmacy. Estrogen vaginal tablets are available at your pharmacy without prescription. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, chronic myeloid leukemia, or CML, is one of the lesser-known strains of leukemia, but one which is receiving increasing attention due due to the dramatic success rate of a relatively new treatment plan. Professor Vernon Lowe is a haematologist and head of the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of the Free State. Professor Lowe, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hello, Karen. Uh, good evening to you and your listeners. Well, and, you know, we all hear about leukemia and we hear, you know, the Sunflower Fund and they're raising funds and these bone marrow transplants. And, but we don't really know much about this chronic myeloid leukemia. How different is that from what we sort of, it's in our sort of consciousness about leukemia? Right. So, so, so as the name says, it's a chronic leukemia. So we tend to have acute and chronic ones, the acute ones being the very aggressive ones that if you don't do anything, uh, things can go really, really wrong within days or weeks. Whereas with the chronic leukemias, you know, patients can often walk around for months, sometimes even years, uh, before they get to the doctor. So I think it speaks about the slower growth of the disease, uh, especially initially, but but if left, uh, you know, without treatment, eventually it will change into an acute leukemia. Um, the big thing for us is to diagnose it early so that it never happens and that you can actually treat it very successfully if you catch it early. The other thing that I was reading some information about the chronic myeloid leukemia is that it more likely affects slightly older people. It's more an adult thing because normally leukemia that we know affects the young. Yes, the, the chronic myeloid leukemia 
Typically, if you look at at least at studies from America and Europe, it would affect people, you know, in their 60s and 70s. And, uh, but in South Africa, for some reason that we can't uh, quite explain yet, uh, we see that the disease occurs slightly younger people, um, often in their 30s and 40s. Uh, we think it may have something to do with our population structure and people don't age as much here as in Europe. Um, you know, we've got a... Uh, a younger age on average that people um, actually pass on. So, but, in, but, but generally speaking, it's supposed to be a disease of uh, people older than 50 years, although we often see it in younger people. Professor Lowe, we're having a slight problem with your cell phone line. I'm just wondering if you possibly couldn't just move to a place where possibly we're going to get a little bit better reception because yes, you'd be we breaking. Can try that. Absolutely. Does, is that, does that sound better? Uh, yes, you pretty much don't move for a moment or two. You might actually, because okay. you keep right. breaking. Let's, oh, let's try it from here. Oh, that sounds a lot better. Right, okay. Fantastic. Right, okay. So now we, we mentioned that it's more likely to affect adults than it is children. This, yes, it, it, is. It, it obviously can affect children, but that I would imagine is very rare. It is rare, indeed. Okay, so now, but you said people walk around with this possibly for years. Are there no sort of outward symptoms of this? I think the challenge with, with chronic myeloid leukemia is that the symptoms are very nonspecific. I mean, and, and this is why I'm always hesitant to mention them, because it's symptoms that many of us may experience, you know, commonly, like fatigue, uh, chronic fatigue, or you just feel tired. Um, some people develop swelling of the abdomens because the spleen enlarges, and they may feel... Um, when, they, when they've eaten, they feel full very quickly. But these symptoms generally are not very specific. Um, in contrast to some of the other leukemias, chronic myeloid leukemia does not commonly give you big lymph nodes, for instance, which would be easy to pick up. If you feel all these lumps, you know you have to go to the doctor. Uh, with, with CML, that doesn't really happen. Um, so generally speaking, the people may feel tired, weak, um, loss of appetite, and so on. So very nonspecific, and I think if you've experienced any of those things for a long time, don't think you've got leukemia, but at least have it checked out. Um, the doctors won't do the necessary tests. And usually it's picked up actually on a blood, a basic blood test, not so much on examining the patient. And the blood test really will just show there's an overabundance of white blood cells? Generally speaking, yes. Uh, the word leukemia actually comes from white blood. Uh, when it was initially described in the 1800s, uh, they noticed that these patients had too many blood, too many white blood cells. Um, but sometimes when these abnormal cancer cells start taking over the bone marrow, which is really the factory where blood is made, uh, the bone, bone marrow can eventually fail. And that could lead to very low blood count. So you can either have a high white cell count or a very low white cell count. Either one can happen. And that often goes with anemia, so a low red cell count. So that's why people feel tired. And they could even have a low blood platelet count, which means that they will easily bruise or bleed. Now, there's, are there any known causes for CML? Not that clear. Um, we think that smoking uh, or exposure to radiation may play a role, benzene exposure possibly, but it's not as clear as with some other cancers. But those are the three sort of main things that are considered as possible causes. What about genetics? Is that involved anywhere? Not really. So it's not a heritable disease. So it happens at random with somebody. Uh, some change does take place in the genes 
effects of the individual patients. It's in the genes of their blood cells, the stem cells in their bone marrow, but it's not something that they inherited from their parents, not as far as we can ascertain at this stage. So does this occur, the, cha- the genetic change occurs only once they've uh, developed CML then? Well, it's a genetic change. That's what causes it, yes. That causes CML, but it's an acquired change. It's okay. not something you're born with. So some incident may have happened. Let's say you may have been exposed to radiation, which leads to a change in your genetics in the stem cell. The stem cell is misprogrammed in that process, and then all the offspring of that stem cell, because you know all blood is actually made from stem cells, so all the offspring will be abnormal and contain this abnormality. And those abnormal offspring, those are the, the like I like to explain to my students, the little terrorists that start fighting against your own body. Now, I mentioned it was rather exciting because there's a, rel- there's a new treatment plan in the works. What is that and how is that working? Well, we've, we've had what we call targeted therapy now for, for more than 10 years, actually. But there's some very new generation ones that are much more effective than the ones we had before. And what it basically means is that this misprogramming that took place leads to a number of abnormal signals within the cell which causes these cells to divide uncontrollably. Now, the targeted therapies can actually switch off that signal and stop the cells from dividing, so the cancer actually stops growing. Now, if you compare that to traditional chemotherapy, it's almost like now we've got a sniper focusing on the cancer cell, killing the cancer cell with minimal collateral damage to the normal cells of the body. Whereas chemotherapy is almost like a, a cannon or machine gun approach where you shoot at the cancer, but you also shoot normal body cells, and that's why patients with chemotherapy have that many side effects. So generally speaking, these targeted therapies are more uh, effective and less toxic. So uh, the, the outcome of these patients has changed completely. Previously, they would have maybe three years to live, uh, now, the vast majority of patients will live eight, nine years uh, on average. So, and that's that only the, the sort of the time that we've had to follow them up. It could be much longer. Many people think they may have a normal lifespan future. Well, I was reading about one of uh, somebody called Trevor Stain, who is a CML survivor. He has been for 25 years. I'm not sure he's been on this treatment for 25 years, but just to give people out there some hope that it's, it, you know, there are people out there living with CML. Absolutely. There are many people um, like Trevor who's had incredible responses to therapy. And as a matter of fact, with the newer generation drugs, we see more and more patients that uh, have such a good response that the cancer completely undetectable and as a matter of fact uh, it looks like in future we will probably reach a point where some patients may be able to stop therapy because they could potentially be cured just by taking uh, a capsule or two a day. Well this is also the point though professor is that if people are put onto this therapy it is a lifelong and at this stage lifelong treatment but it's also this whole thing about compliancy I mean they have to take it every day. Absolutely, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's sort of my, my for, for me personally, the most important thing about taking medication in general, any chronic medication. I think the best predictor of success is actually 
not about anything else. It's about being able to take the medication and remembering to take the, patient, the medication every day. We know that in CML, you have to take the medication at least nine out of ten days to get the benefit. People don't realize that. They think it's okay to skip a dose here and there, and that's where they make a mistake. So if you do it according to the book, your chances of having a great outcome is excellent. If you don't, it's actually your, your chance of having a long-term good response is probably less than 20% compared to more than 90% if you take it every day. Are there side effects that are putting people off from taking it all the time? Some people do experience side effects, yes, and that's one of the reasons why they go off therapy. But the important thing here is they just need to speak to their hematologist because they small adjustments that we can make either in dose or dose intervals uh, or even if necessary changes because we've got a number of these drugs to choose from now, changes in the drug that you take, that could help the patient be on the drug as they should be. So I think patients should just communicate early with their doctors. If they're struggling, let us know and we can sort that out for you because generally speaking, there will be one of the medications that should work. So there's, don't sit there and say, well, I'm not going to take it today because I'm having X, Y, and Z side effects. You don't have to suffer with the side effects. There are ways of actually dealing yes, with that. Absolutely, great ways of dealing with the side effects. And, and it's one of the important reasons why I believe uh, these patients should be treated by experienced doctors. Because managing the side effects is really a, a little bit of a, an art in itself, but it's very easy to do once you know how to do it. We've actually written some guidelines and published them a few years ago uh, that deals with these side effects and how to manage them in detail. So there is good news out there for CML sufferers. Um, there is something that, that is working at the moment. And as you said, you know, there might be one or two side effects, but they are manageable. So if you are on the medication, please, please, please do take it every day. You're only doing yourself a favor. So please don't just think, well, I'll skip a day or two. It's not going to do you any good at all. Prof, thank you so much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. That's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Another wonderful evening. Thanks. You too. Good night to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good. Bye-bye. Professor Vernon Lowe is a hematologist and head of the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of the Free State. If, you have, if you've been diagnosed with CML, you can contact Kathy Skierpers on 082-940-6397 or take a look at www.themaxfoundation.com. Org. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, tinnitus or tinnitus is a medical term for an auditory perception not produced by an external sound. It's commonly described as a ringing, a hissing, or a roaring in your ears, and it can range from low to high-pitched sounds. Barbara Hines is a lecturer in audiology at the University of Pretoria. Barbara, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cora. Nice to hear from you. This must, for people who suffer from tinnitus or tinnitus, I'm never quite sure how to say it correctly, it must be a very disturbing thing, having this constant buzzing or ringing going on in your head. Yes, no, it's very disturbing to most people. It's it's quite common, you know. It's really common. Most people experience tinnitus. I mean, if you say tinnitus or tinnitus, it depends on mm. your preference. So most people experience it at some point in their lifetime, there's some statistics saying that more than 50 million of the USA residents experience it at some point in their lives, and almost half of them have sought help from either their general practitioners, ENTs, audiologists, but as many as 2.5 million people are actually debilitated 
by the symptoms. So it's really common, and a lot of people have experienced it at some point in their lifetime, whether it being ranging from a couple of seconds, minutes, or even a constant sound that they hear in their ears. I was fascinated to read some information that said there's something called, I didn't know this, called objective tinnitus, which it's less common, but that other people can actually hear the sound in your ear if they listen to it. Yes, yeah, that's quite, it's not very common. Yeah, that's like you say, objective tinnitus. Um, what they do say, it's more related to bodily sounds, or what we call Somato sounds. So that's the term for bodily sounds usually. So that's someone where you can hear the sound, but your wife or your husband or your children, whoever's standing next to you, if they come really close to your ear, they can also hear it. So there has been some suggestions saying it could be due to vascular problems, muscular problems, or even respiratory problems. Now, tinnitus itself is not actually a disease. It's a symptom of something else. That's correct, yes. So tinnitus really is real. And a lot of patients, because of the subjective nature, like we just said, objective tinnitus, where someone else hears it, it's not very that common. The most common one is a subjective tinnitus, which means you hear the sound, but others cannot hear the sounds, only you. So that means that a lot of people say, when they do see a doctor or a specialist, whoever says, you know, because I can't hear it, I can't always measure it, so I think it's just in your head. But we need to tell a lot of our patients, you know, this is real. It's not imagined. It's not in your head. So we always tell patients, you know, tinnitus is a symptom of a, a wide range of things. Most commonly, it's due to a dysfunction of the inner ear structures. There's a specific part in the inner ear called the cochlea, where we've got lots of tiny little hair cells, and they are usually damaged due to noise exposure, whether it being recreational exposure, like listening to music a little bit louder with our iPods and our MP3 players. We switch it up a little bit too loud. So over a long period of time, we get noise-induced cochlear dysfunction or as a normal aging-related kind of cochlear dysfunction, normal aging process called um, presbycusis. So we see that especially in the elderly. And also a lot of the times it's because of some side effects of certain medications, you know, com combination of medications or too high doses of certain medications and the side effects of them can be tinnitus. Regarding medication, some medications are what we call ototoxic, so it's toxic to the inner ear structures and they cause damage to specifically the hair cells in the ear and that in the, in that causes then the hearing loss and then the tinnitus is usually the symptom of this hearing loss. So you can see the tinnitus is not the disease itself. It's just a symptom saying there's something wrong, usually in the ear or somewhere else in the ear. Now you mentioned ototoxic medication. Would that be oral medication that's still affecting the ear? Or is that you talking about something putting in something in the ear? It's usually specific medication. So ototoxic medication are usually um, medication used to treat certain um, chemothera uh, certain cancers, like certain chemotherapeutic agents like carboplatin, cisplatin, usually ototoxic. And then we've got um, 
Ototoxic medication, for example, streptomycin, which is usually used by patients with tuberculosis. So to treat them, they, they receive streptomycin, but the side effect is usually irreversible hearing loss. And then we've also seen that some patients with um, HIV or AIDS, they are taking antiretroviral agents, and we, we know of some um, literature reports that have shown irreversible hearing loss because of the antiretroviral agent suggesting that it was ototoxic. And I don't want people suddenly to stop taking all their medication now because this no, could happen. Please not. don't do so, that. <laughs> no. Now, the other thing as well, I've also read reports of people who work with chemicals, certain chemicals can also suddenly develop tinnitus as well. Is that correct? Yes, some chemicals in the environment can cause it, um, but it's sometimes not, there's no conclusive evidence that it's purely the chemicals. It could be because of the environment that they're working in. It could be that the environment itself is very noisy. Certain industries are very noisy, and the noise levels are so loud that it will cause a noise-induced cochlear dysfunction, so meaning patients or the subjects will start to get hearing loss and the tinnitus is a symptom of this hearing loss. Now, obviously, for people who suffer severely with tinnitus, as you said in the very beginning, it can be very disturbing for them and it, could, it, it really affects their quality of life. Now, as an audiologist, how can you help people like that? So the first thing is to identify what is the cause of the problem. So usually we will start off as in working in a multidisciplinary team. We want to see what is the cause of this tinnitus. So we, we will usually start off with a good otologic or ear examination, examining all the different parts of the ear, starting from the outer ear, which is the ear canal, making sure there's not impacted wax in the ear canal or some kind of infection or um, uh, perforation of the tympanic membrane or middle ear infection. So that's usually done by your uh, medical doctors or ear, nose and throat specialist. From there on, the audiologist will assess then the middle and inner ear function by doing audiograms and specialized hearing tests. So it's to look specifically mm. at whether this cochlea or the, the hair cells in the cochlea has some form of damage already. Because sadly, I have spoken on the show quite often about those little fine hairs in your ears. And I'm, I was told that unfortunately, once those are damaged, that's it. They don't come back. That's right, yes. Now, at, at this point in time, there's not any treatment to reverse hearing loss. So once the hair cells are damaged, it's usually irreversible. You do get situations like after being exposed to very loud noises. So let's say, for example, you go to a concert or you go to a club and the music is excessively loud. So you do get that the hair cells start to bend and lean forward. And then after a few hours or even a few days, they, they start to recover. But over years and years of exposure to the noise, those hair cells just get damaged, and this is where you see permanent or irreversible hearing loss. But there's a lot of, there is studies going on to look into um, regenerating hair cells, but we're not there yet. 
Okay, so at, the, at this point in time, try and avoid, if you possibly can, too much in the way of loud noises, loud music. Please encourage your children, because it starts with them, not to have all these things plugged in their ears and not to stand right next to the speakers when the music is pounding, because they will damage their hearing. And, and I, I was actually also reading something a while ago that more and more young people, or the age at which people are losing their hearing, is getting lower and lower now. That's absolutely true, and, and no, from the University of Pretoria side, we've done numerous studies looking at preschool children because iPods and MP3s are so popular now, so children are plugging those earbuds into their ears, janking up the volume to listen to their music and all these devices, and this is already causing significant changes in their hearing from a very, very early age already. So we're seeing tremendous increase in hearing loss in the in the younger people for in the younger people now. Yes, definitely. So as parents we need to start pulling those things out of their ears as much as we possibly can. We should, yeah. No earbuds. If they want to listen to it, rather use your headphones or just put it at a softer level yes. that is not damaging <laughs> to the ears. Well I do remember being young once and loud music was great, but I don't think we knew any better then. But hopefully parents are listening now and they will try and save their children's ears. They're very precious. They're not gonna come back. No, they don't. And what what they always, not always realize is they're still developing language. Mm. And if you don't have proper hearing, you can't hear the language. So you will see a significant decrease in their language abilities, which in effect will affect their Ability. So it's quite a vicious cycle. Gosh, okay. So hopefully we've a lot of people listening out there have learned something tonight, Barbara. And uh, hopefully we'll see f- fewer children with these things plugged into their ears. And uh, hopefully we'll save some you know, hearing for a while because, gosh, as you said, you know, it can affect so many different aspects of their life. It's not just the hearing. It can affect all aspects of their life. So it's something we really need to take very seriously. Yes, no, we do. So we need to educate them and they need to be aware of the consequences. And it's not just mom and dad just being difficult. We're trying to help, you know. (laughs) We we all want to help them, yes. Barbara, thank you so much for your time and for chatting with us about this this evening. It's been great. Thank you so much. It's a big pleasure. It was nice speaking to you. Thanks a lot. We'll hopefully speak again soon. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night. Barbara Hines is a lecturer in audiology at the University of Pretoria. And for more information, you can contact the South African Speech Language Hearing Association on 0861 113297. You can email them on admin at saslha.co.za. And the website is www.saslha.co.za. You can also contact the Department of Communication Pathology at the University of Pretoria on 012-420-2357. Health Matters with Karen Key. Dr. Christy Hughes founded the Centre of Natural Healing Arts over a decade ago with a vision of providing integrated healthcare solutions for the public as well as healthcare providers. And she's been in South Africa recently and she's going to be telling us a little bit more about functional medicine. Dr. Hughes, good evening. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I think, first of all, could you explain what functional medicine is all about? Yeah, absolutely. I have the privilege of being in private practice back in the United States, so I do functional medicine in my own office, 
but I also work for the Institute for Functional Medicine, which is the leading nonprofit educational organization that's uh, more than 25 years rich in providing uh, medical education to physicians in a postgraduate realm. So I am coming from the perspective of doing it, uh, seeing it, living with it with patients, and then also having the opportunity to be involved in the teaching movement uh, that we're seeing internationally. So what is it? You know, functional medicine is a philosophical approach to looking at patient care. And there really are three main aspects that define functional medicine. The first is that you are involved or engaged with a patient in seeking to identify the underlying causes of their disease. Not just looking at patterns uh, that are linking back to symptoms or signs, but actually taking it one step further to look at the diagnoses, the multiple diagnoses in chronic disease, and looking to seek the underlying processes or imbalances that can contribute to or cause those diseases. So that's one very important aspect of functional medicine. It's not looking at the diagnosis, looking at the disease, and then going on to treat with a drug, a therapy, or a nutrient. It's actually seeking to find the cause of the disease. Second key aspect of the functional medicine paradigm is that it's looking at what are called clinical imbalances. And these clinical imbalances are instead um, a way of approaching medicine through systems biology. And systems biology has been emerging now again for the last 20 years as a different way of looking at how the body's processes work to serve higher function. So, for example, patients with, let's say, fibromyalgia or chronic widespread pain disorders often present with pain and fatigue syndromes that have had a slow, gradual onset over time. Now, in a functional medicine paradigm, instead of treating that patient with an anti-inflammatory, an antidepressant, and a sleep medication, which is the conventional approach, fibromyalgia is approached through systems biology by addressing cellular toxicity, what's referred to as oxidative stress or a buildup of toxins and metabolic byproducts in the tissue, and supporting the body eliminate and rid itself of these byproducts that when they accumulate cause both fatigue and pain. So it's a process of looking at what contributes to the aching, the soreness, and the muscle tissue, and not just managing the symptoms of the disease, but getting to the underlying cause. So, for example, there are nutrients, there are food programs uh, that are directed towards fibromyalgia patients, but more than anything, a physician that's managing fibromyalgia in a functional medicine realm would be working on metabolic detox, actually supporting the liver function and the bowel to be able to dump and remove and eliminate toxic waste from our normal metabolism and our exposure to the environment um, versus just suppressing the pain or managing it with an anti-inflammatory approach. Now, this is very much patient-centered care, which is very important, and it's pivotal to functional medicine. Absolutely. You know, when you actually look at the third defining aspect of what is functional medicine, um, it is all about the doctor or practitioner-patient interaction. It's called the therapeutic encounter, the therapeutic partnership, uh, the relationship between the practitioner and the patient. And how that brings in patient-centered care is, you know, yes, a doctor, a practitioner, a GP may work up a patient and have, you know, a differential diagnosis or a confirmed diagnosis of what's wrong, uh, say, for example, hypertension and a dyslipidemia. So their blood pressure is elevated and they have high triglycerides, for example. Um, but instead of managing those conditions separately or independently with drugs, 
a functional medicine practitioner would turn to the patient and say, you know, what are your goals? What are your health goals at this point? You know, and that patient may be, you know, concerned about their cardiovascular history, you know, based on family, um, or it could be sleep, you know, or it could be stress management or possibly weight control. And so the patient is in the center of their care in regards to decision-making. And the story of how a patient's condition has unfolded over time is much more important than the actual diagnosis that was made. And so in a therapeutic encounter, the practitioner and patient together co-create a treatment plan or a wellness care plan uh, that they will both embark on together. And patient education is front and center, one of the most important things that's a part of the functional medicine paradigm. So whether it's the doctor doing the education, a nurse, an educator, a nutrition professional or a dietitian, a very substantial part of the interventions for patients in functional medicine are raising their level of awareness, understanding what's causing their disease, and supporting them make behavior change or modifications to their lifestyle so they can truly transform their health care in a wellness-building format versus just suppression of symptoms. Now, functional medicine, to me, sounds very different to traditional Western medicine. Are there any similarities between the two? Well, there actually are. And the interesting thing in the United States, predominantly, um, our audiences, which you know run in the thousands uh, with doctors, 70% of our audiences are conventional practitioners, you would call them GPs here, as well as osteopaths. You know, it's about 30% of our audience or our market that are nutrition professionals, dietitians, acupuncturists, or um, integrative or CAM providers. I think you call them allied professions here. So it's very much steeped inside of the conventional paradigm. And it's a very evidence-based, science-driven um, field of medicine. The changes uh, that a practitioner goes through as they adopt the elements or principles of functional medicine are that they do need to spend more time with the patient. They're taking the time to hear the whole story and how it's unfolded. There's a, a narrative process that's uncovered. So it's no different than a GP today sitting down and taking a medical history, but instead they're asking questions in a different way. They're organizing the information in a unique fashion, which is around what's called the functional medicine matrix. And that doctor, as they do their interview process, is seeking to gather knowledge about where they're going to begin in helping this patient change their health care course. So uh, the physical exam is another area where physicians do physical exam every day with their patients. But in a functional medicine and functional nutrition paradigm, there's much more that that doctor can see in their physical exam when they're looking for nutrition-related attributes and they're looking at it through a functional medicine lens. So same behaviors, but a different way of thinking about their case and a different course of action in helping their patient truly get to the causes of what led to their disorder in the first place. It sounds to me almost like you're talking about something from the good old days, you know, when doctors used to do the house calls and got to know the families and you knew the whole history of the patient. And it, I think it's really a lot of it is to do with time. You know, I think you're right there. And I think what's really beautiful, being on the education side of things, you know, watching hundreds of physicians go through training courses in functional medicine, the common theme that I hear as an educator is, you know, this is why I went into medicine in the first place. This is what I thought I was going to be doing when I went to medical school. And so I think it is really bringing practitioners back to why they wanted to support patients in a true healing pattern. 
and I'm helping them really find those roots. You know, I think you're right. Uh, the key is either the doctor has to spend more time with the patient or the doctor's collaborating team that works with them need to take time to gather and organize this information. And so, yes, you know, absolutely, it's taking the time, it's understanding the story, looking at the family traits, the familiar characteristics. Where do they live? Where do they work? You know, what is their environmental exposure load like? Because all of that manifests today in our state of health or disease. You've mentioned a few times nutrition, and there's also functional nutrition. Now, how do functional nutrition and functional medicine, what is the link between those two disciplines? Well, nutrition is a very core foundational attribute of good medicine. And so in the United States, our physicians who come out of medical school in the U.S. today have on average 12 to 16 hours of nutrition over their entire eight years of medical school and then on into the residency. And so physicians in the United States, and, and we're actually learning globally, really want to know more about the foundations of food and nutrition and how that impacts their patients. So functional nutrition is a way of looking at your patient's health care in the functional medicine matrix paradigm. Again, um, looking at the causes of disease and seeking to find where may nutrition insufficiencies or genetic predispositions that impact the way our genes and our environment or our genes and food have an interplay with each other, where might there be roles for this discovery work in each and every patient's care? You know, it is actually quite impressive here in South Africa. Uh, Nutrigenomics is actually rather well known, um, I would say more so than in, in quite a few other countries that we teach and we train. And so nutrigenomics is a remarkable field surrounding personal medicine because what you're looking at are genetic studies where you can uncover predispositions in specific enzymes that are involved in driving cellular activity that help us understand where our patients may need additional support maybe particular foods, uh, a unique way of exercising. Uh, we can, through nutrigenomics, help our patients transform their lifestyle so that they can truly change their personal health outcomes. So functional nutrition is looking at a personalized approach. It's identifying patients' body composition patterns, you know, where or how might they hold weight on their frame. So looking at their labs and uncovering nutrition-related content or information inside of their lab reports, doing a physical exam, looking at those physical findings to see where might we see nutrition inadequacies from the outside of the body, and then reviewing someone's diet or their overall diet diary profile. And through those ABCDs, they're called the anthropometrics, the biomarkers, the clinical indicators of physical exam, and a diet and lifestyle review, those ABCDs are the key components of a robust functional nutrition assessment. So functional nutrition provides a framework for how to assess a patient, how to organize that information, and seek to create personalized intervention. You talk about the imbalances in our bodies, which obviously are then precursors to all sorts of other things that could occur. What are some of the core clinical imbalances that exist? Well, that's a wonderful question that you ask. You know, some key clinical imbalances that we see, you know, really prevalent and predominant in the population today, um, one in particular would be inflammation. And, you know, today when we really look at the scope of chronic disease, we look at obesity. We look at issues related to osteoarthritis, osteoporosis cardiovascular disease, atherosclerotic formation, or plaque in the arteries. You know, the, the common underlying themes of all of these disorders today would be inflammation. 
And so there are laboratory markers uh, that practitioners can identify, and there are familial or family trends that we can look at that would speak to inflammation being present in these patients. You know, many people don't realize that if their waistline is slowly increasing with age, that if it's inner belly fat, the belly fat that's inside of the abdominal cavity, cushioning the organs, if it's inner belly fat that we're storing, the inner organ belly fat produces inflammatory messages. So the more inner belly fat that we store, the more we propagate or induce or create these inflammatory messages in the system that can set us up for prediabetes or can accelerate or increase plaque formation within the arteries or the arterial tissue. So it's very important that we seek to find the underlying causes of disease. And if you were going to look at these main causes or processes, it usually comes back to inflammation, allergens, toxins, and then looking at these key provocations that can come from nutrition insufficiencies. So if practitioners can seek to identify these underlying contributing causes of disease, find the source of those causes, and help the patient modify their diet and their lifestyle, as well as appropriate you know, drug or nutrient therapies where necessary, you're able to change that patient's trajectory towards disease, and you're able to actually reverse chronic disease formation. I mentioned earlier the word, the dreaded word, time. And I think that is where a lot of our problems as the patients come from because we go to the doctor and we want him to fix us right now. We want the short-term treatment right now and we want to be better by tomorrow. But do you think possibly a longer-term holistic approach would be more effective? Absolutely. You know, there's no question. And, you know, physicians are often in today's paradigm or business model not allowed, you know, that appropriate amount of time to gather information. So it's time that's required from both sides. One, the patient to really give their practitioner the appropriate knowledge and information that they need to get to know them, to know their case, and to help them make changes. And I have to say, there's no question, there are patients that want a quick fix. You know, they want an alternative to their drug, perhaps, or, you know, they have type 2 diabetes and they're eating, you know, five to six slices of bread a day, you know, drinking a six-pack of Coca-Cola, you know, and eating that Kentucky Fried Chicken, who literally don't want to change their diet. You know, we say, well, isn't there just a pill or a nutrition supplement that I can take, you know, to manage the disease? So I think the first steps in public health are raising the levels of awareness of the connection between the cause and the effect of the way we eat, think, move, and our philosophy that we take, the responsibility that we take as consumers today in how we live has a direct impact on our health outcome. I think you're absolutely correct. It's, it's both patient-connected and doctor-driven by time allowances. Now, you've spent some time here in South Africa. Are you finding that functional medicine is being recognized here as an, as an academic program? Absolutely. You know, actually quite remarkably. Uh, we're seeing a very large growth in this movement internationally, I can say. Um, we have more than over 100,000 practitioners around the world who've been exposed to the functional medicine movement in the last 20 years. And what I've really enjoyed about South Africa is the physicians, the GPs, and the nutrition professionals here have had a very rapid um, adoption phase in the sense that, you know, some of the things that they share with our physicians that come to teach and train here can literally date back to 10 to 15 years ago, the standard of care in the United States. So what's really interesting is in some ways, 
the general medical practice here today is a little bit behind the times in a sense. And so they've had an easier, I think, state of being in grasping the functional paradigm and accelerating very rapidly in adopting evidence-based science, clinical approaches, and being able to, you know, move very quickly into improving their art of doing good medicine, their art of coaching, their art of connection. Uh, you've got a wonderful um, university, the University of Stellenbosch. Uh, Dr. Maria Christodoulou has taken a very proactive role in bringing functional medicine into South Africa. Uh, through the university at Stellenbosch, they have actually created the first integrative and functional medicine postgraduate program. And uh, Dr. Maria is now um, working and teaching and collaborating with the Institute for Functional Medicine in the United States. And you've got some remarkable people here who are putting a stake in the ground and starting to get involved and bring this format into academic medicine. You know, in the States, in the United States, it's taken at least 15 to 20 years um, for levels of adoption to be present throughout medical school, but at this point uh, in the United States, there have been over 65 medical schools that have worked with the Institute for Functional Medicine, and our courses and our programs and our nutrition content are there to be licensed and brought into those programs, residencies, uh, medical school training programs, to bring functional medicine to that next level of accepted and, and standard care. Well, it's very exciting news to hear that we are up and running and uh, getting ourselves also into the whole the new realm, if you like, was well, not that new, but into the realm of functional medicine. But I need to make the point as I push on this program a lot that we also need to take responsibility for our own health, as you mentioned with the diabetes case that you spoke about earlier, that it's not just up to the medical practitioners. We have to put our own effort into our own health as well. It's a two-way street. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's a shift in consciousness, and, and I think the doctor has to play a critical role. The doctor has to you know, motivate and inspire and teach the patient. You know, if you go back, the word docere, docere translates to teacher. And the doctor was meant to be the teacher. And so the doctor and the, the GP's collaborating team need to work on behalf of the patient of educating them about what they can do, what the causes are of their disease. And we find that patients really appreciate knowing that information it puts them into the driving seat, you know, and gives them the opportunity to gain control of their health care in what sometimes feels like an out-of-control health situation. Dr. Christy Hughes, thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you much. I was speaking with Dr. Christy Hughes of the Institute for Functional Medicine in the United States. If you'd like more information, there's two websites. There's www.functionalmedicine.org. And here in South Africa, there is a website. It's www.functionalnutrition.co.za. And that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with time to travel. If you need any information about something you've heard this evening, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or the Facebook page Health Matters on SAFM. Well, Stephen Kirk is up now with some nighttime music. Hello, Stephen.